from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. The motto here on our show is everything is a climate story. And here's the thing about making a show with that thesis. Sometimes you need to cover the topics that are, mm, I won't call them boring because that would be a bad way to start the show, seemingly arcane. But we wouldn't cover them unless there was a really compelling climate angle. And that brings us to the Congressional Budget Office, or CBO. But you don't need me to make budget scoring exciting. I'm going to let the folks at the CBO explain to you what they do. Lawmakers created CBO to give the Congress a stronger role in budget matters. CBO was established under the Congressional Budget Act of 1974 to provide objective, nonpartisan information that would support the budget process. We publish cost estimates for all legislation reported out of committee or considered on the floor of either chamber, a range of budget and economic projections, studies of major federal programs, and a number of other products. In 2017, CBO published over 700 formal cost estimates provided technical assistance to the congressional staff for thousands of legislative proposals and amendments and published dozens of reports about the budget, the economy, and other policy issues. We're always available to talk with you, and we look forward to working with you and your staff. For the sake of factual accuracy, we should note that we added the music to that video. But jokes aside, the CBO is wildly important to any policy that's being shaped in the chambers of the U.S. Congress. Uh, Republican Senator Chuck Grassley went so far as to say, quote, CBO is God around here, and that policy lives and dies by the CBO's word. Dr. Mark Paul is an assistant professor of economics and environmental studies at New College of Florida. And anyone with a PhD in economics like Mark knows the CBO. The CBO is essentially the referee of legislation. It's more like a hybrid referee and scorekeeper. They're literally scoring every piece of legislation introduced in Congress. And that score tells us two things. First, what will the impact of that legislation be on the budget? And two, what will the impact of that legislation be on GDP, gross domestic product? Will the economy grow or will the economy shrink due to that legislation? This seems really sensible, right? Every piece of legislation gets a nonpartisan score on its economic impact. And then you have a fair way of knowing the economic benefit or the cost to the economy. The problem, though, or I should say one of the problems with the CBO, is that it has no way of calculating the cost of climate change to the economy. And this can cause all kinds of funny things to happen. It played out in a very real way at the end of last year, when Joe Biden's signature climate plan, Build Back Better, was up for debate. That bill included half a trillion dollars in climate spending. And as we know, uh, Build Back Better was essentially you know, introduced by Democrats and had absolutely no support by Republicans, despite the fact that it would have created millions of well-paying jobs in the United States, despite the fact that it would help reinvigorate industry in the United States, and despite the fact that it would have helped substantially reduce emissions in the U.S. Let's rewind to last December. Without any Republican support, the fate of Build Back Better rested on the shoulders of one Democrat. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. Welcome back to Fox News Sunday. Good to be with you, Brett. Senator, you're at the center of this uh, negotiation with the president over his social spending and tax bill, a bill, the Build Back Better bill that is not coming up uh, in the Senate before the new year, in part largely because of your reservations. Without you, the leadership doesn't have the votes it needs. So today, right now, what's the state of play? And after months of frustrating negotiations, Senator Manchin went on Fox News right before Christmas and crushed any hope of the bill passing. I cannot 
vote to continue with this piece of legislation. I just can't. I've tried everything humanly possible. I can't get there. There are a whole bunch of reasons why Manchin didn't support the bill. One is messaging. He's trying to hold on to his seat in a very conservative state. Another is financial. He owns a coal business that pays him half a million dollars a year. But the reason he cited that day on Fox for his vote against the bill goes back to our friends from the top of the show, the Congressional Budget Office. It's the bipartisan, Brett, Congressional Budget Office. has They're, they're upwards of $4.5 trillion. $4.5 trillion. If everything that's still in the bill today, even though they said they've cut it down, still in the bill, would be paid for in full, you're in that $4.5 trillion. So the CBO came up with a score. And, you know, unfortunately, the CBO said that Build Back Better would have been uh, fairly costly to the U.S. economy. What it did was it gave moderates, or what what I would characterize as conservatives like uh, Joe Manchin, essentially cover to go on Fox News and say, I'm not supporting Build Back Better because it's too costly. But that score the CBO gave, it doesn't account for any economic cost of climate change. And there are a lot of analyses showing that economic cost. For example, a projection from one of the world's largest insurers showed that climate change could slash $23 trillion from the global economy by 2050. Or an analysis from Deloitte showing climate inaction could cost the U.S. economy $14.5 trillion in the next five decades. That Deloitte study also showed that rapidly decarbonizing the economy would add $3 trillion to America's GDP over that time frame, which is in line with what every major organization studying the economic impact of this issue finds. The CBO's modeling assumptions say, nothing to see here, they just don't address it. And as an economist, the most frustrating thing is that it just completely ignored any benefits associated with reducing emissions. We know that decarbonizing the economy is economically feasible. In fact, we know that it would be economically beneficial. We also know that we have the vast majority of the technologies necessary to do it. The only hurdle we're facing today is a purely political one. And CBO, for no good reason, is giving additional ammunition to climate deniers left and right. This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. One of the biggest impediments to a federal climate bill is a government modeling group that very few people know about. This week, we're asking, when will America's budget referee factor climate change into the rules? The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals, with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a frontier forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, costs, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com events. When did you start paying attention to the Congressional Budget Office? I started paying attention to the Congressional Budget Office when I was back in grad school. You know, basically, I, I got really interested in public policy, um, and particularly in environmental policy. And time and time again, whenever environmental policy was introduced, 
it was viewed as extremely costly and often the cost outweighed the benefits. I started asking why. One thing led to another, and next thing I, I knew I'm reading about the history of, of this thing called the Congressional Budget Office, which is frequently referred to as the CBO in Hill Speak. So why are lawmakers like Chuck Grassley calling CBO God? How did this God come to exist, and how was its budgetary religion formed? Well, the CBO didn't exist until 1974. Basically, every major piece of social legislation, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, minimum wage laws, they were passed without the CBO. Then Nixon came into office, and he started impounding funds, meaning Congress said that they were going to appropriate or spend a certain amount of money on a piece of legislation, and Nixon simply didn't do it. 1974, President Nixon is impounding funds. Congress is furious with him. He's cooking the books. Essentially, any piece of legislation that Nixon supports, he has in-house White House economists come out and say, this will be the best thing ever for the economy. And any legislation Nixon opposes, he has economists trotted out to say, this is going to implode the economy. So Congress, through bipartisan action, creates the Congressional Budget Office. The Congressional Budget Office was a part of this bill in 1974 that was designed to stop Nixon from sitting on these funds. It's called the Congressional Budget and Impoundment Control Act. Not a super exciting name, but the idea was to keep the power of the purse in Congress, not with the president. And as part of this act, the CBO was created, a neutral body that would evaluate policy from an economic standpoint. Good idea, right? Both teams agree that they are, you know, a, a fair and um, honest um, kind of broker in the policy situation. Um, but in fact, CBO is anything but. The thing is, a model is only as good as the assumptions it makes. And CBO assumes no benefit from stopping the planet from overheating, a problem we know very clearly is a looming economic catastrophe. I mean, the, the British statistician George Box famously said, you know, all models are wrong. The question is, you know, is the model help useful? And at least here in the case of the CBO, I mean, I have to say that, no, it's not useful. In fact, it's, it's actively detrimental. So for the last decade and a half, mainstream economists have been warning about the economic costs of not doing anything about climate change. So why, when the economic costs of climate change have been so clearly calculated, is the CBO not doing anything? I mean, that's the million-dollar question. Um, you know, uh, unfortunately, we've seen continued inaction from the CBO. I will say, to their credit, they did put out a report talking about climate change and saying that, you know, climate change is a problem. We know that. Um, yet we haven't figured out how to work it into our complex model. Now, of course, as somebody who understands how powerful CBO is and how they constantly are making or breaking legislation, I don't find that anywhere near sufficient. I mean, just to put it into perspective, a report that came out under the Trump administration, the National Climate Assessment 4, estimated that unabated climate change would lead to damages in the realm of 10% of GDP every year into perpetuity. So just to put that into perspective, that is, you know, more than twice the size of the great financial crisis back in 2008, but as a permanent shock to the economy. Um, it would be, you know, pretty catastrophic. And to be frank, I think that that is actually a, a underestimate of what things would look like in a three-plus-degree warmed world. Um, precisely because a habitable planet underpins absolutely everything in our lives. So it's, it's hard to capture those in a simple GDP number. There is much debate in the U.S. government over the social cost of carbon, and that is how the federal government estimates the economic costs or damages of 
a ton of carbon dioxide. How does that consideration factor into the way CBO scores budgets and potential bills? Like, do those two intersect in significant ways? The social cost of carbon doesn't factor into the CBO analysis. The social cost of carbon is utilized for regulatory um, analysis, not for legislative budgetary analysis as done by the CBO. So they're essentially used in two different branches of government, but as of right now, the CBO just ignores it. There's a lot of different ways you could think about the CBO incorporating climate change into their analysis. This is not my preferred way, but one way would simply be to um, take up Senator Sanders' Carbon Pollution Transparency Act, estimate how much uh, carbon would um, be either emitted or mitigated, depending on pending legislation, and to apply the social cost of carbon to that. Um, and to you know account for those either damages or benefits depending if carbon is going up or down. And I know you know we've focused our conversation on how the CBO thinks about climate change, but the assumptions that are baked into the CBO's model um, are, are pretty wild in a number of different areas that also influence debates around climate change. So just to give you one example, the CBO is just just simply assumes pulls it out of a hat that public investment is half as productive as private investment. Now, why does this matter? This matters because if the government invests money, engages in public investment to put the U.S. on a path towards decarbonization, the CPO de facto assumes that's a substantially worse path than simply pricing carbon, economists' favorite tools, and allowing markets, allowing the private sector to purely lead that transition. And here again, you know, the empirical evidence shows that that's just completely false. Um, that is not at all how the economy works. And in the real world, often public investment has higher rates of return than private investment. So yes, the CBO has lots of fallacious assumptions. And one thing is clear that, you know, kind of the current role of the CBO is just not in the public's interest. We're going to take a quick break here. Afterward, if the CBO is so bad at evaluating climate policy, why hasn't Congress done anything about it? Mark your calendars for May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com slash events, or click the link in the show notes. So the CBO was created by Congress. And in theory, Congress could do something to change the way CBO makes these calculations. Has there been any legislative movement to try to alter this? On the positive side, a number of members of Congress are well aware of this issue and have been trying to push the CBO to take climate change seriously. 
In fact, back in 2014, Senator Sanders introduced the Carbon Pollution Transparency Act, um, which would have required CBO to calculate a carbon score for any and all legislation introduced. This would have been a tremendous step in the right direction. Now, keep in mind, that's not saying that they would have fully accounted for costs and benefits, both of climate change and of mitigating emissions, but it would have been a step towards that. Um, Unfortunately, Sanders had minimal support in Congress to enact this law, which I find deeply troubling. Um, I have been working with members of Congress to try to continue to raise awareness as to this issue, because I do think it is a fundamental roadblock to the United States passing any climate legislation. If we don't acknowledge the cost, if we don't acknowledge the fact that we cannot continue with business as usual, which is the baseline, um, then it's really hard to see why it is that we should be investing public resources into the into decarbonization in the first place. If you think that climate change isn't an issue, why would you be trying to solve it? And essentially, that's what the CBO has been saying time and time again. Let's go back to the CBO as referee analogy. I could imagine a CBO official saying, I don't know what you want us to do. We're calling the game like we see it. These are the rules that we operate by, and we're doing our best. If you want to change the way the game works. Don't blame the referee. Just change the rules of the game. What do you say to that? So I think two things. I mean, first of all, I absolutely think Congress is falling down on the job. You know, um, they they are failing to institute um, smart and reasonable guidance for the CBO that would dictate that the CBO actually acknowledge the climate crisis and work to incorporate this into their models. But the CBO also has a lot of leeway internally. I mean, you know, right now the head of the CBO is a Trump appointee um, who himself has had no interest in shifting the direction of the CBO to recognize and and really think about uh, climate change. You know, unfortunately, he could do, you know, he could do otherwise, and unfortunately, he has chosen not to. The CBO doesn't need Congress's mandate to change their model here. In fact, they could do it without Congress. Congress could force them to, but there's no reason that the CBO um, needs to wait. And, and in fact, you know, as, as a, essentially a bureaucratic institution that is tasked with evaluating the economic and budgetary impacts of legislation, it's, it's really in their mandate to account for this, given where the science and economics are. Um, so I think that they're absolutely falling down on the job as well. In short, there's there's no shortage of blame to go around. And I, I think we can and should be pointing fingers both at the CBO itself and at Congress. If you were to rank reforming CBO's assumptions uh, among all the other things we would want government to do to better <laughs> assess the climate threat and do something about the climate threat, where would you put it on the list? You know, that's a really hard question, but I put it very high on the list. I mean, the the power that CBO has on the Hill is just really hard to overstate. And if CBO would simply say, hey, no, we cannot continue with business as usual because we are going to have catastrophic costs mounting from the climate crisis. You know, again, all this is is acknowledging reality. I mean, 2017 is a great example. In 2017, extreme weather events fueled by climate change wiped out 60% of GDP. Okay, More than half of economic growth was just eliminated due to extreme weather events. And all CBO needs to do is simply account for those costs. Um, and that would fundamentally change the calculations as to what legislation is, quote, good or bad for the economy. Dr. Mark Paul is an assistant professor of economics and environmental studies at New College of Florida. 
The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. If you want to see all of our back catalog episodes or lots of other great journalism on the energy transition, go to canarymedia.com. You can also find our pod anywhere you get your shows. Send us your thoughts on social media. You can find Carbon Copy there. You can find me there. Or send a link to this show to a friend or colleague if you think they'll like it. Thanks to our team. Ann Bailey is our senior editor. Alexandria Herr and Jamie Kaiser are our producers. Cecily Mesa Martinez is our managing producer. Sean Marquand mixed the episode and composed our theme. Original music came from Echo Finch and Blue Dot Sessions. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude's a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a wide range of sectors, including advanced energy, food and agriculture, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing and advanced computing give us a rating and review on apple or spotify if you can thank you so much for being here i'm stephen lacy this is the carbon copy we'll catch you next week mm-hmm.